you're new here on Answer Alert, this is where Renee and I, your hosts, and sometimes a guest, analyze, break down, and discuss different topics each week anthropologically. Enjoy. Good afternoon, Bulls. It's 3 o'clock. You're listening to Bulls Radio WUSF 98.7 HD3 Tampa, 1620 AM on campus, and always streaming worldwide at bullsradio.org. It's a humid, slightly rainy day in Tampa, but I hope you're ready for Anthro Alert because that is what you're listening to. So today we have a special guest with us. We have Dr. Chad Radwin with us to talk about the Druze community and his experience during research with them. But before that, uh, just to give you a little intro of Anthro Alert, if you haven't listened to us previously, this show is about anthropology and why it matters. Each week we'll discuss how anthropology is relevant and over time we'll feature various guests from the Department of Anthropology to discuss their research and have them weigh in on everyday topics or current events. We believe that this is a good opportunity for us as anthropologists to better connect with the USF community and to raise awareness of the value of an anthropological perspective. Uh, just as always, uh, every week we like to preface our show with a disclaimer that the statements that we make and the opinions we express on AnthroAlert are ours and ours alone and may not necessarily represent the anthropology community or as a discipline as a whole, the USF anthropology community or department or USF or student government. So I am Spencer and I'm sitting here with Renee. Hey, hey. Yeah. And um, Dr. Radwin. Like Hello. Introduce yourself. <laughs> <laughs> so we're just going to hop right into the conversation. We're going to have Dr. Radwin hop right into his discussion on the the Jews community. So why don't you enlighten us and our our listeners a little bit about who who the Jews community are? Okay. So uh, foremost, I think it's important to to recognize that the Druze um, community are Arabs. Mm -hmm. And the Druze community represents a relatively small minority, an ethnic and religious minority, uh, perhaps um, a little over a million, up to perhaps a million and a half individuals worldwide. Um, the countries of origin, um, to use the term loosely, where the Druze reside are Lebanon, um, northern Israel, northern Jordan, and southern Syria. Um, just to say a bit more, perhaps, about the Druze history, uh, the Druze are, as I mentioned, ethno-religious community whose religious tradition began in the year 1017 A.D., and the revelation of the truth, um, as the Druze see it, of their religious principles uh, were first espoused by um, an individual named Al-Hakim bi Amrullah, and he was the sixth caliph, king, however you would like to call it, of the Fatimid dynasty, um, which held its seat of power in Cairo. In fact, established Cairo as um, a principal city in Egypt and um, also the Al-Azhar um, Mosque, and um, uh, which is considered actually one of the first um, institutions of higher learning in the world, if not the first. So this individual came around in the year 1017 and established the foundation and the principles of this faith um, and saw it more or less as a continuation of the previous monotheistic religions. Mm. So I, I'm going to step back a little bit. I, uh, the term that you mentioned, ethno-religion or ethno-religious communities, what, what do you mean by that? Um, so to, uh, to explain, um, a religious community more or less explains itself. We recognize mm -hmm. that the Druze are a religious community and that they 
are supposed to share um, basic religious principles mm -hmm. of faith, if you will. Uh, more or less, the Druze community sort of lacks um, what I found um, a, a basic knowledge of their own religious principles. Um, so it's a cultural group as well. And to say that the Druze represent an ethnic group um, is is quite accurate. Um, we we oftentimes should look at the fact that we make the term ethnicity um, sort of as race 2.0, right? Or in some ways, um, we make it sound sort of synonymous with um, with culture, right? Um, so the the Druze are an ethnic group um, that's very discreet, mainly because um, the the religion was more or less closed off in the year 1043. Um, and proselytization didn't occur after that. So after 1043, those religious um, folks who, who accepted the call to the Druze faith um, were it for the community. Um, given the fact that there was no proselytization, no method of conversion, the Druze practice a strict form of endogamy that remains to this day, um, and, and it makes them a very discreet group. So mm -hmm. they, they can be considered an ethnic group Mm -hmm. um, if we would like to think that an ethnic group um, has been a group that's been interbreeding in one way or another for the course of one millennia. Mm -hmm. So you said that the, the Druze community itself makes up around a million, a million and a half individuals. Um, and there's at least a, a significant uh, diaspora as well, um, correct? Mm -hmm. So I know that you've you've done some work with this community in the United States uh, for for your your master's thesis. Um, can you talk a little bit about sort of um, the history, maybe the history of that diaspora, but also um, you know how you got in, involved with this community and and what you looked at for your master's thesis? Sure. Um, just to mention briefly the history of the diaspora, um, some of the first Druze left um, Lebanon, um, what the area that would eventually become Lebanon. Um, is now. Um, they had left perhaps in the mid-1800s, um, 1860s, 1870s, and went to Argentina. Um, those Druze who emigrated to Argentina in particular um, are no longer um, really uh, part of the Druze community in one way or another, mostly because there were young men that emigrated and um, they didn't bring women. So there was the there was no more sort of endogamy being practiced. Um, they didn't marry within, and, and the culture was one way or another lost in that region. There are large diasporic communities of the Druze in Venezuela in particular, um, in a handful of countries throughout Central Africa, um, in the United States, um, Canada, Australia, um, and perhaps a, a smaller community in England, um, some vestiges of Druze communities in Mexico and Brazil. Um, in the United States, there's no accurate numbers to, as to how many Druze there there are currently, but I would hazard to guess something around fifty to seventy-five thousand. Okay, mm -hmm. and so you did you did that work, um, you know, fairly fairly locally in in mm -hmm. the the state of Florida, and you were looking at primarily issues of, of heritage and and identity and um, things of that nature. Can you? Talk a little mm -hmm. bit about that. And a sure, bit about I can your elaborate experience. a bit. Yeah. Um, so for my master's thesis, um, I titled it Assessing Drew's Identity and Strategies for, for Preserving Drew's Heritage in North America. Uh, and that was completed in 2009. And I said North America a bit broadly, um, but mainly I, um, I interviewed and conducted um, a large survey with Drew's individuals living throughout the United States. Um, 
quite a variety of states at that and some in Canada as well. Um, and more or less, I did focus on, as the title um, states, assessing Drew's identity. Mm-hmm. And Drew's identity is, a, is sort of an umbrella term. It's a relatively loose term. But I really wanted to know, essentially, how um, these individuals constructed their notion of community, especially in the diaspora. Um, the Drews are fortunate enough to have something called the American Drew Society, which represents um, the, lar- the oldest mutual aid society, Arab-American mutual aid society in the United States. Um, they're well over 100 years old um, as a society, and that has more or less framed how the Druze community interacts with one another throughout the United States, and Canada has its own version. Um, so, as I mentioned, I focused on how these individuals sort of constructed their community, and I gained a better understanding as to the threats that they saw pertaining to the Druze community diaspora and to the Druze community at large, and that began to inspire and inform what would become the dissertation research. Mm. So, okay, so using that as kind of the basis for your dissertation research, um, we're going to take we're going to take a short break and then when we come back, we'll actually talk, well we'll give you an opportunity to tell us about how that dissertation research right. went, um, you know, with the field work that you did in Lebanon. All right, we're back on Anthro Alert on Bulls Radio, WSF 89.7 HD3 Tampa, 1620 AM on campus and streaming worldwide at bullsradio.org. We're ready to hop back into the conversation with Dr. Radwin. Renee? Yeah, so before we before we took our break, uh, Dr. Radwin helped, helped us better understand the uh, the concept of his thesis research, his dissertation research, explaining who the Druze community is, you know, how we define uh, them as a community, where, you know, geographically where, and uh, uh, some historical context as well, you know, originating um, in Cairo. So, so next, let's uh, just start to tell us a little bit more about the the process that you undertook for the dissertation itself. Sure, and I'll mention a bit about how the thesis research kind of transitioned into into a larger um, scale dissertation research. And we know commonly as anthropologists, um, sort of an ideal traditional anthropology is, is conducted abroad um, in an international setting. Uh, so for me, that made a lot of sense. It made a lot of sense to try to understand how these same issues that people were touching upon in the thesis um, were expressed and being identified in Lebanon. And those issues being essentially how the community was to preserve itself. You know, what were the social problems affecting the community in terms of its continuation? Um, And so for me, I really realized I need to go to Lebanon and understand, um, and Lebanon, mind you, does not represent the largest Druze community in the Middle East. That's in Syria, in southern Syria. But in Lebanon, um, the Druze have a long historical tradition, and we're in Lebanon in the area that would become Lebanon long before um, they had emigrated to parts of what they call the Hauran region in southern Syria, which remains relatively stable today given the political situation and the war um, that rages on in Syria for for however many years now. Um, So what I started to notice was that these same issues, uh, uh, which was sort of framed um, as a knowledge gap, as not knowing a lot about who we are in terms of you know, history and religion, as, as informants would say, 
um, was very similar in Lebanon, if not exacerbated. And that surprised me to hear um, when I had encountered folks from Lebanon, from the Jewish community, um, that they that they seemed to lack knowledge even more, perhaps, that there weren't um, resources um, loosely defined that were allowing people to engage with and learn about um, their history and the basic principles of the faith. Hmm. So, um, c- yeah, can you, can you just... Um, Tell us a little bit more on so you you talked about connecting your your thesis to to your dissertation and so you you got to to Lebanon and so what um you, you know what what were you using to kind of talk about these things of of identity and and um you know heritage however that may be defined yes um and that's a good that's a good way to phrase it Spencer because. I did sort of move away from the the word identity and move towards um, uh, studying heritage. And it's not that I was studying something different um, from what I originally had, had set out to do, um, but the, the language was important. And um, looking at heritage and looking at the literature that discusses heritage in a variety of ways in anthropology was very important. Um, I should mention the title of my dissertation was The Sweet Burden, Constructing and Contesting Druze Heritage and Identity in Lebanon. And I would often um, say that heritage would, was synonymous with, with what I was calling shared identity. But I wanted to talk about heritage in particular because heritage is a term that's used in so many different ways, but it, it oftentimes connects individuals directly back to um, sort of a tradition, an ancestral tradition. Um, it's not perhaps used as loosely as identity. Um, one of the issues that I found was that in anthropology, um, heritage is often conflated with the material principles, with tangible heritage. So here I was focus- focusing on intangible cultural heritage. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, how was you know how what was your your field experience like you know when um we had talked a little bit before the show and you were telling us that you yourself are are part of the the Druze community mm-hmm. um so how did that um influence your approach to your research and maybe how do you think that approached the um, the community's reaction to you being there doing research um yeah so it's it's definitely important to not only um understand the community that we're studying but to recognize our own place um, and positionality in conjunction with that community. And for me, I am Druze. And it, it was, it, you know, um, it, it bears talking about that I do mention uh, where my interest in studying the community comes from. Mm-hmm. And as a native anthropologist, I had to do that um, two to three times, if you will, as mm-hmm. much as, as a non-native anthropologist. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think I want to reiterate um, that it's important that everybody does that everybody mm-hmm. is reflexive in doing their research and in approaching what their interest in that particular community is and where they drew their assumptions to recognize that there's a social issue mm-hmm. that they're conducting this applied research on right so by reflexive you mean sort of reflecting on your motivations mm-hmm. and sort of why you're choosing to do something and making sure that there's a solid foundation for why you're making the choices you're making. Absolutely. Okay. And here at the University of South Florida, I mean, the Department of Anthropology, we spent lots of time with lots of professors um, recognizing what our own interest was in pursuing anthropology, um, whatever field you might, you might um, stem from. 
Um, but more so, as I mentioned, it's very important to recognize where your interest is in the community mm -hmm. and the fact that you do come from a base of assumptions when you, when you say that there is a social problem and this is what I'd like to study. It's important to also then take a step back and allow the community to define those, those problems as problems, mm -hmm. um, per se, um, and that's what I did. That's, you know, that's yeah. largely what I did. So right. I began with allowing individuals to, to discuss and define what Drew's identity, what Drew's community, and what Drew's heritage meant to them. Mm -hmm. So I can start to understand what was at risk for this community mm -hmm. and how they saw it. As a native researcher, and I can go on about this, so I'll allow you guys to sort of interject, mm -hmm. um, I had to really be critical of my own perspective. But I saw this kind of contradiction in anthropology um, wherein we're often encouraged to, quote-unquote, go native. And mm -hmm. here I was, a kind of native. I was born and raised in the United States. I had only been to Lebanon one time prior to conducting this dissertation research at the age of 27. Mm -hmm. And so I was an outsider um, as much as I was an insider. Hmm. You, you know, uh, Chad, so in regard to um, how this helped shape the your your theoretical perspective so it sounds like um it really took some time for you to uh integrate yourself into into the community mm -hmm. and you know reflect on the specific um well i'm going to say problems but that, i mean that's not the best word mm -hmm. um but, but the, the environment and the the, the political economic environment mm -hmm. and to help that draw out or that you use that to help draw out the the theory that you would use mm -hmm. for your dissertation. Yeah, no, you, you're you're hitting it on on the nail on the head when you when you use the word um, political and economy because I did use a political economy theoretical approach in studying the Druze community, um, and I used political economy approach in, in somewhat of a loose way to say that we do need to recognize uh, the role that politics and economics play with any community that we study. Mm -hmm. I expanded that a bit to recognize the role that you know history plays, the role that um, even stories of um, Genesis play. And notice how I bring up the word Genesis when I talk about history. So we need to understand not only um, how history is sort of defined um, by outsiders or the history of a community is defined, but the, the, the genesis stories and the cosmology of studying um, religious groups in particular um, is very important because that is sort of um, sometimes a different history of not only how the world was created necessarily, but, um, but it sometimes may differ from the historical record, if you will. Mm. Um, the, the founder of the Druze faith, Al-Hakim, who was this you know, very powerful person in Cairo, was a very divisive figure in history. Not a lot is known about him, but what is known is that they frame him um, as a madman <laughs> who um, destroyed the, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre um, and, and used to supposedly walk in the streets uh, without a lot of fanfare and not having you know, his, uh, his regalia on as the caliph of a massive um, empire, if you will. Mm. Um, but the Druze saw him quite differently. Um, and in, in looking at the historical record, um, it was interesting to notice that um, the accepted history um, had some contradictions in there as well. For example, I never saw anything that mentioned that he ascended to the Caliphate um, at the age of 11, 
which is well known among the Druze. So can you can you explain what you mean by that? The Khalifat and ascending. Yeah, yeah. The the Khalifat is is is, is essentially him becoming the the caliph. So ascending to his throne. Mm. Okay. Um, and that was a very important piece of history that was being left out of the historical record. Um, the Druze believed that he, um, I believe the word is inculcated, inculcated. Um, and some people understand the word raptured, more or less disappeared one mm. night, uh, w- taking one of his many walks into the desert. Um, history doesn't know what happened to him, but um, you see this common theory put out there that he was murdered by his sister. And there's absolutely no proof for that, um, but but you see it repeated, sort of in in various various stories, various historical books about him. Hmm. So, um, what you know, when we're we're talking about all these things about uh, you know the the history that that you were um, you know asking this com- the community about and their identity and their and their religion and how that sort of um, you know formed how they viewed their community. Um, and you know how how all this maybe clashed against some um, political and and economic, mm-hmm. um, right, right. Uh, I guess issues or you know with other communities maybe or w- internally within their communities. So what were some of the um, the findings that you had, or you know, can you generalize some of the findings that you had out of your dissertation? I I certainly can, but I do want to take a step back to to kind of re um, rediscuss um, how the political economy approach informed. Um, my entire approach to those findings. Okay, and so so recognizing um, the role of politics was extremely important. Uh, the Druze community has um, been seen as somewhat divided since the four nations that they occupy. Uh, when we talk about the countries of origin, um, have very different politics going on. Whether you're talking about Israel, Lebanon, Syria, or Jordan. Um, also, they do occupy the Golan Heights, which has been contested, I think, since 1969. Um, mm. And there's a great film I'll recommend called The Syrian Bride, which is not too hard to, to see. Um, and it shows you that those individuals, um, those Druze individuals, once uh, once marrying outside of the Druze community in the Golan Heights um, and emigrating back into Syria can never return home. Mm. Uh, so the politics are very different um, mm. for this community. In mm. Lebanon... Uh, the politics of the Druze also varied. Um, they're largely represented by something called the um, Progressive Socialist Party, the PSP, and um, it is a, a, a political party that has a lot of associations with communism. And communism, you know, um, having this this pervasive idea that you know religion is secondary, religion is not important, and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had to ask why they were so heavily associated um, and symbolized politically by a party that had the hammer and sickle that mm-hmm. was communistic, you know, mm-hmm. um, and and that was terribly important. Also, when I talk about the economic situation of the Druze, they are a minority representing something like mm, 6 to 9% of the population in Lebanon. Um, their economics were very different. In Lebanon, there is sort of a system um, wherein, you know, there are favors done when one gets a job after graduating. They call it WASTA. Um, and that was terribly important for people's success. The social supports in the community and their financial burdens were very important mm. um, just to recognize sort of what the context was of how they were constructing their identity, where their loyalties lied, and and everything. Um, I'm, I currently am writing a, a piece about um, an article 
about um, how marriage is a huge financial burden. And I was fortunate enough to have an article um, recently accepted. It'll be published in 2018 in the Journal of Economic Anthropology focused on the financial burdens of Druze in Lebanon as compared to those in Israel. Hmm. And finding a job were, were sort of how those financial burdens hmm. were framed in Lebanon, the, hmm. the trouble of finding good jobs. Hmm. Great. So, Renee, I think it might be time for another music break. All right. So we're going to transition into some music, and then we'll be back with Dr. Radwin. Hey, Bulls, you're listening to Anthro Alert, WSF 89.7 HD3 Tampa, 1620 AM on campus and streaming worldwide at bullsradio.org. Uh, yeah, you're listening to Anthro Alert. Thanks for coming back. After our short music break, we're going to carry on the conversation talking to uh, Dr. Radwin about his research in Lebanon with the Druze community. We're just going to hop right back in there. Um, I think you, you uh, wanted to mention something about maybe your, your methodologies or um, maybe some of, of the results that you found coming out of, of the study of your, um, from your dissertation. Right, Spencer. So, yes, I, d- I did want to mention that um, in conducting the research study, I um, ended up with 91 qualitative interviews of which of is quite sorts. large. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Yes, <laughs> and it was it was it was not easy to get that many um, that many interviews um, with a total of about 112 participants and the extra participants accounting for members of a variety of focus groups. Um, so you know, having landed there, I was there for about seven months, um, and I took a few weeks, you know, getting my own place in the town that I was going to set up shop in, um, which. Um, I will mention was my parents' hometown, um, a place that I had only visited once previously, and a place that I didn't have too many um, family connections. All of my own relations lived in the United States with with perhaps three out of 30 of my cousins um, living in Lebanon, Mm. um, but not in that particular town. So I set up shop, and every week I decided I need to do at least four interviews, um, whether it was a focus group in oral history, or a semi-structured interview um, with a quote-unquote expert interview or, or non-expert interview. And it was easy to fall behind. And every time I fell behind, you know, it would just accumulate. And, mm. and you know, I, I always kind of um, feel like it's important to mention that to folks who study anthropology and have these, you know, really huge sample sizes in mind, I was fortunate enough to where I, I kind of hit mine on the head, I knew about how many I could get, and I, I got them, but it was not easy, and it was it was quite stressful. Um, and I ended up with, with a handful of more interviews than I had originally planned to get. Um, so I, I really, by the end, through a lot of blood and sweat and tears, um, spoke to almost every individual I wanted to speak to in terms of those that I pursued for oral history interviews, mm-hmm. uh, which were about topics that were um, particularly interesting for, for those individuals' lives. And the expert interviews, and as far as the the regular interviews go, um, it was it was all uh, I would interview anybody. Did you choose to audio record those, or did you kind of take notes and then you know brain dump everything afterwards? <laughs> no, I audio recorded yeah. those, um, and, and and I I don't regret it for a minute. Um, I thought when I was in the field that I was going to be um, beginning my lit review and um, and transcribing those audio recordings and having all this sort of stuff done by the time I came back, and that wasn't the case at all. Mm. It was a rat race, um, you know, getting folks, establishing relationships, um, doing participant observation, really feeling like I was a part of the community, mm. going on trips with the local women's auxiliary, um, <laughs> which was really fun, uh, you know, attending, quote-unquote, prayer sessions um, and, and all that. It was 
it was more important to immerse myself, uh, to practice my Arabic, if you will, and mm -hmm. uh, and sort of and focus on that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I audio recorded those interviews, took my time transcribing them later on. You know, life happens when you come back to the States. You have to catch up, um, you know, on all, on all sorts of things. Maybe mm -hmm. take up teaching responsibilities, as we so often do here at USF. Mm -hmm. It's, it's interesting that you mention, um, you know, practicing your Arabic because, you know, language training is a large part of, um, you know, dissertation research in anthropology where you said traditionally you go abroad somewhere. Mm -hmm. um, so did you did you already have some, some knowledge of Arabic going in or um, mm -hmm. and then just kind of tried to, I guess, dust it off a little bit while you were there? Yeah. So to, to kind of explain something a bit more personal, I was um, born and raised in the northwest suburbs of the Tampa Bay area, an area called um, Newport Ritchie, and um, there certainly were not a lot of Arabs in that area growing up. There were virtually none um, other than my own family. We had a very tight-knit family, uh, learned Arabic in the house growing up, and, um, and I was able to kind of maintain that conversational Arabic going to Lebanon. Uh, it got rusty over the years, that's for sure. I was never taught to read or write anything, as with most most people that I, I see in the United States who, sp who speak a second or third language, that uses a different alphabet. But when I came to USF, I took two semesters of Arabic and was able to read and write um, quite easily after that. Mm. Um, but a lot of printed Arabic is in this traditional form called Nahawi, and mm -hmm. um, it's, it's not always easy to, to read and interpret. Mm -hmm. were, were you surprised by your, um, by your quickness in being able to, to pick up the, the written language? Um, I was surprised, um, but I don't think that had too much to do with my my own background in Arabic and conversational Arabic, uh, to be frank. I was in that class and those two classes with individuals who had no background in Arabic who picked it up just as easily. Mm. Um, somehow the Arabic alphabet, um, which is where the alphabet in general comes from, mm -hmm. um, seems to make sense to English speakers. Mm. Hmm. I, you know, I've, um, I had one or two lessons in, in uh, Arabic. Uh huh. And I think had I had more than just two, I <laughs> <laughs> maybe you could have done something. Like yeah. That. Right. <laughs> uh, um, so go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead, Ray. Okay. So so then my, so then uh, kind of recapping just a f or, or bringing something back that we discussed mm -hmm. earlier. So mm -hmm. uh, do you think, Doctor Redwin, that that part of your interest in this specific topic um, stems from, I mean, your own identity w mm -hmm. within the community? Absolutely. Um, I think I was acutely aware of the issues that the Druze community was facing being Druze myself and um, being born and raised here in the greater Tampa Bay area um, and going to Christian school early on with my twin brother, being told we were different but not understanding exactly how. Mm. My family seemed to have, in comparison to other families, a better grip on the basic tenets of the faith, and they shared that with us. And as I grew up and realized that my fellow Druze didn't have that basic background, that elementary knowledge of the Druze faith, and of course, uh, in terms of the knowledge about the history, I had to pursue that on my own, as did um, a lot of my cousins and siblings and so on. So certainly, um, that is where my research interests stem from. Mm -hmm. And um, as a native anthropologist, I'm, I'm very uh, I don't want to say proud of that fact, but I'm very aware of that, and I think it's it's um, natural, you know, to recognize that our research interests do not just fall out of the sky, um, you know, without without uh, some kind of subjective, you know, interest. Mm -hmm. We are people. Mm -hmm. We have backgrounds. 
we have interests and it's you know important to pursue those in certain contexts of course how we pursue those is another story yeah absolutely absolutely so, so let's step back from from this a little bit and kind of look at the larger picture the larger perspective of the implications of your work and how you think that could impact social sciences or heritage preservation Mm -hmm. um, you know, y'all did ask earlier, by the way, a bit about my, my research findings. Mm -hmm. um, Renee, I, I, if you don't mind, I'd like you to kind of restate that question maybe in a moment so I can discuss those research findings, however briefly. Um, and uh, this does kind of pertain to the question you just asked because what I essentially did was look at my research findings in terms of four main themes. Um, I problematized my original research question and, and, and triangulated my methodology. And I said, um, you know, I wanted to know how was Druseness defined? How was Druse, that is, heritage and identity defined? Um, how were educational resources framed? Um, how were the community's social problems defined? That was sort of the step three. And finally, I wanted to know what were the means to ameliorate or improve upon the society, mm. mainly through what I was calling educational resources, formal and informal. So for me, I really did um, take a step back and try to understand um, how Drew's identity community and heritage was linked to formal and informal educational resources focused on Drew's history and the basic tenets of the faith. And I reiterate basic tenets of the faith because, because the Drew's faith has a sort of esoteric, deeper interpretation in a, in a, a, a large amount of knowledge that is often relegated to um, the class of sheikhs in the Druze community. Mm -hmm. uh, the class of sheikhs are, represent perhaps about 15% of the Druze community in Lebanon, and among the Druze sheikhs, or mashayikh for plural, are men and women. Um, and they often are seen as um, the keepers of that esoteric and deeper interpretation of religious dogma, of, mm. of the doctrine and the principles. Um, what's, what's often shared among uh, sheikhs with non-sheikhs are the ethical principles, um, important historical stories. Um, but I was seeing in Lebanon that that, that, that communication um, gap was really sort of, um, uh, well, it was a gap at that. Um, there weren't a lot of um, opportunities for individuals to ask, sh ask sheikhs questions in a formal setting or engage with them um, or with particular curricula. Um, so, you know, when I looked at my research findings, I did see that the Jews community, despite the fact that I always frame it as an ethno-religious community and, and that it is, um, we're not necessarily united by a shared dogma, um, by shared religious principles. Um, so what did unite them? Essentially, the fact that Druze communities are largely Druze. There aren't, um, you know, lots of Christians, Shia, Sunni in those Druze communities. Um, they're relatively discreet, but they were mainly re uh, united by a common belief in reincarnation. And that is not common in the Middle East, for sure. Um, and this belief in reincarnation defined what I call Druze particularism. It, it defined the Druze sense of self as distinct from the Christian sense of self in Lebanon, mm -hmm. the Sunni sense of self. Mm -hmm. So that was essentially the formative um, idea of what united the Druze community and, and defined Druze identity. Hmm. That's interesting. Um, did you did you have a follow up question, Renee? Uh, yeah. So I mean, I'm still so I'm still interested to to hear your take on how. 
that applies to larger or uh, more generalized um, conversations on heritage preservation. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, to, to kind of follow up on that, um, did you present any of this research maybe back to the Jewish community, and, and how do you think your, you know, what you found can have an effect on, on the community? Uh, that's a good question. Um, you know, we are applied anthropologists here at USF, and I've had a lot of opportunities, uh, seven opportunities in particular, to share my research with the Druze community. And mainly those opportunities have been with the Druze communities here in the United States and in Canada. Uh, and those communities are closely linked to um, the communities in Lebanon in particular, um, because the vast majority of Lebanese um, or Druze in the United States, in North America in general, are from Lebanon. Um, so with, through the American Druze Society, I've been invited on a number of occasions, um, last time in Toronto and previously in D.C. I have an upcoming engagement uh, next month in Seattle um, to talk about my research findings, to talk about my study. Um, you know, I try to share my dissertation as broadly as possible, uh, and I'm, I'm having to sort of, um, um, you know, balance that out, sharing this research with the academic community and anthropology as much as I can try to share it with the Druze community at large. I was involved with something called the Committee on Religious Affairs with the American Druze Society, and we were overseeing um, a curriculum that was sort of formal to teach the Druze about um, these topics, these important topics about their history and their faith. And um, hopefully some vestige of that will continue to go on. Right now that project was, was put on hold for various reasons. Um, so, you know, my research will hopefully um, inform the Druze in Lebanon uh, when, I, when I plan to return, hopefully in the next two years, mm -hmm. and, uh, and maybe do a more acute study of the educational resources. Mm. So, so in a sense, um, one of the applied aspects of this is to um, empower uh, the Druze community to to have a more formalized structure for heritage and you know, heritage preservation, cultural. Yes, yes. It became very clear that as religious comprehension became less prominent in the community, uh, the community itself lost purpose, and association with a distinct Druze identity um, would diminish. Um, what else do I want to say about that? Advancing knowledge of history and faith, um, I think, has an intrinsic positive effect on the strength of the of the Druze community in general. And that's not a big bridge to cross. That's not a difficult thing to see. Um, but the dissertation was very large. It was something in the range of 400, um, little over 400 pages. And in the way it's discussed in the dissertation, the way the Druze community is discussed and, and what's at risk and how the social problems are identified, um, explains those last couple of statements a lot more clearly. Mm. All right, so if it's okay, uh, let's maybe ask you some questions about your career trajectory and how your thesis and dissertation research has better positioned you um, to, to be a uh, practicing or professing anthropologist. Yeah, I mean, I would I would like to 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 sort of um, mention that um, the anthropology that I have done, the anthropology that I would like to continue to do in an academic setting, um, reminds us that heritage is um, a process. It's a process of meaning making in and for the present. Mm -hmm. And part of what I just said um, was pulled from an anthropologist and archaeologist named Laura Jane Smith. Um, who was one of the few academics that I came across that was really talking about um, intangible cultural heritage in that 
in with those words, with, with that phrasing of it being a process. There were others. There were others. Um, but Laura Jane Smith really put it out there and, and put the focus on that. Um, for me, as far as a career trajectory goes, I would you know, like to end up at a decent research university <laughs> conducting my own studies, but I've been involved in a lot of different research projects. Um, you know, I've, I've pursued some postdocs, um, one of which I, I nearly had some success with recently. Um, it was at Georgetown University, and it is a postdoc about Drew's studies. Um, and I was the second candidate. Unfortunately, the first candidate accepted, but uh, we'll try again next year. Um, how common? Uh, how common is that emphasis? Uh, sorry. How common is that emphasis uh, to have a, a position like a postdoc position, um, especially emphasized on um, the Druze? It's unheard of. It's unheard of not just because the Druze community is relatively small, um, or because they lack some political or social social clout, because um, they don't in their countries of origin. Uh, they, in some ways, have more political power than their numbers represent in Lebanon's confessional um, system which sets up the parliamentary votes uh, in terms of religious representation and population. Um, so so this, this postdoc is rare. It's relatively new. It was funded by a small cadre of American Druze uh, who call themselves the American Druze Foundation. And um, it was established with the intention of setting up um, an opportunity for the Druze community to assess the most basic thing that I looked at, how the community would continue um, and how they preserve their identity and unique heritage. Um, so that was the intention of these individuals. Uh, now the, the postdoc is, uh, is funded in perpetuity, and I know that there should be perhaps some seed money for a larger project going on at Georgetown eventually. And it's housed in, the, um, in an interdisciplinary center for um, uh, contemporary, the study of studies of contemporary of the Middle East contemporarily or, or something that that nature. I can't remember exactly what the center is, is called again. Um, so I would mention one other thing. This kind of postdoc is especially rare because a lot of these um, sort of efforts take um, an agreement by the larger Druze community and the powers that be in Lebanon to say this is, this is fine, let's go forward with it, um, let's support this. And um, that support wasn't always forthcoming, but eventually it was. So has there been pushback over the last um, few decades when there have been other efforts to establish maybe a formal curriculum to teach the Druze about their history and their faith? Perhaps. Has there been pushback when it comes to establishing positions like this in academia, in prestigious places like Georgetown or otherwise? Yes, I would say so. Um, but this one was successful. Um, it, it seems to be as I mentioned, uh, there to stay. Just out of curiosity, uh, how many, I guess, other academic anthropologists or maybe other uh, social scientists, you know, how how many of these acad um, academics are, are focusing on the Jewish community or doing research in the, in the community? Like, uh, do you know of other scholars um, besides yourself doing similar or, you know, different research with the Jewish community? Yes, um, there are there are a handful. Um, there was a Druze anthropologist named Dr. Intisara Zim, who um, who did work in the United States um, on the Druze community, and then um, proceeded to move to Lebanon and teach at the American University of Beirut and do research there. Um, there's another individual in Israel um, at a prestigious university, and a handful throughout the United States who have done their dissertation research on the Druze. Um, so there there are individuals who are interested in this community for good reason. 
Um, as I mentioned, they're very discreet. Uh, they're relatively unique in terms of their belief or incarnation, and they are a community of interest um, for so many academics. Um, so, you know, how many of them focus solely on the Druze? Not many, mm. not many. Mm. And so far, that is what I have focused on. Mm -hmm. And I'm hopefully going to be continuing to, to expand my research interests to look at um, the preservation of heritage and culture and so on for any um, ethnic or religious minority in their countries of origin or that represent minorities in the diaspora. Mm. Mm -hmm. Well, and that's uh, that kind of that brings us to the close of our our show. So we've you know discussed uh, for the last uh, nearly fifty minutes, um, Druze, uh, the Druze community, um, the the impact and the significance of uh, the research that Dr. Radwin has done, and uh, we even looked at ahead a little bit to. Uh, the possible futures of uh, further Drew studies, but also um, the importance and uh, the no the idea that intangible culture um, heritage is a process, mm -hmm. which uh, is striking and and uh, th th that moves me a little bit. Uh, but so that's the end of our show today. So you just you know listen to Anthro Alert on Bulls Radio WUSF eighty nine point seven HD three Tampa. 1620 a.m. on campus and streaming worldwide at bullsradio.org. We will uh, talk to you next week.